on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, a smart way of solving the lack of backpackers in the state. So after talking to farmers, what I was finding was a bit of a common theme that the backpackers were following the season down the coastline, but they were skipping Tasmania because there's so much farm work happening and and demand. um, There was no need to come to Tasmania. And a tough season for the humble passion fruit in the main growing areas. Most of those areas have had extraordinary amounts of rain, so fungal diseases, not being able to get on to spray, too much water, weather was too cold. So yeah, I think it's been the perfect storm actually against the industry this year, so it's been quite a challenge. Yes, it could be a very expensive pavlova this year. A look at the passion fruit season and also a smart way of attracting backpackers to the state with the amount of work available on the mainland. Those stories coming up. G'day, Tony, with you on this special midweek Giveathon Day where we do have something special this hour to give away. Tell you about that in a moment. Also on the program today, Richard Bailey with the Livestock Markets, a check on the weather and some amazing work being done on farm robotics. But first... ABC Gives, the 2022 ABC Giveathon. Donate now at abc.net.au slash givingtree or call us 1300 222 936. And there's plenty of people with the Christmas spirit, especially Joe Spargo. G'day, Joe. Hello. I can't believe I'm allowed to talk on the country hour. This is sacred. Wow. No, this is super welcome. special. Now, it's a very special occasion, obviously, the Giveathon and uh, trying to raise money to help so many people. And there's so many farmers out there that probably have had a good year, might be able to spare a few bucks to oh, donate. So many people have done it so tough and yeah. we're raising funds for Tasmanians and Tasmanian families. All of this money stays in our state, it is distributed across 11 charities and it makes such a big difference to people's lives. Definitely. And, and there's a lot of people out there in the rural areas of the state that uh, do need a little bit of help for Christmas. The donations have been coming in. This morning we were on around 70,000 yeah. and we've been setting goals throughout the morning. Now, we've had lots of things to give away. You've got... We have. The prize, the Christmas prize that everyone wants. We have. We've got a beautiful five kilogram box of Derwent Valley cherries. There you go. Now, what, what do people have to do? To All uh, they need to do is is to text the word cherry yeah. on 0438 We did have an auto reply set up, but that broke earlier in the morning. <laughs> we Not only, Tasmania, have we crashed the SMS system in Tasmania, we've done uh, it nationally. So I'm in this group chat with a lot of other managers and they're all saying, is anyone else having trouble with their SMS today? Yeah. And I'm like, it's us. It's our generosity. So what happens is you text the word cherry, we send you a link back yep. to the ABC Giving Tree donate page. And the donations have been so generous this morning. Some have messages. Judith says, have a special Christmas. Darren says giving is better than receiving. Uh, Barbara says, I hope the birth of Jesus brightens your life. Uh, Best wishes from Barb. There are beautiful messages there. But Tony Briscoe, we are so close to $100,000 that you're going to tip us over this hour. Your listeners. Look at that. We've got four SMSs already with the word cherry. Okay. Isabel's out there madly now (laughs) manually doing this texting you back. We're at $99,202. Whoa. Okay, well, we'll check just before the news headlines 
Hopefully we'll be over the 100,000 mark. Here we go. Look, they've gone crazy. SMS 0438922936. Thanks, Joe. No worries. Talk to you just before the news headlines, Joe Spargo there. And uh, don't forget that number, 0438922936. Text Cherry or Cherries, whatever. And uh, you could win that fabulous prize of a five kilogram, five kilo box. Plenty of cherries there from the Derwent Valley. Okay, let's get into the program. Well, higher prices for dairy, both at the farm gate and also on the supermarket shelves, have not been enough to arrest a 6.5% drop in milk production for the season to October. That's according to Dairy Australia's latest Situation and Outlook report released this morning. It comes at a time when consumers are increasingly price sensitive and production in the Northern Hemisphere ramps up. However, DA's Industry Insights and Analysis Manager John Droppett has told Peter Somerville the seasonal conditions will continue to be the biggest wildcard for the industry over the next few months. One of the manifestations, I think, of the, the shortfall in, in milk production here in Australia that we're seeing um, you know, starting to emerge is, um, you know, we're seeing price increases for milk step-ups at, at the farm gate. Um, you know, that's at a time where um, global markets are drifting. So, you know, while there's some support domestically from the domestic market, you know, obviously uh, uh, higher dairy prices on the shelf means more uh, more money in the supply chain, which does help support that farm gate price. Uh, I think the increases in farm gate price we're seeing really do, um, you know, really do allude to that uh, tightness in milk supply. So farmers are, uh, are profitable, but of course, there's some real um, real challenges that have defined 2022, so high costs being one of them, uh, staff shortages being another, and on top of that now, uh, through spring, we've had the wet conditions and the flooding. So uh, from a farm perspective, uh, that's thrown some, uh, you know, some extra curveballs out, especially for the farmers that are directly impacted. Uh, but of course, it's impacting feed prices, for example, for those farmers who aren't even, you know, directly impacted by flooding. And, and of course, the wet conditions creating challenges too. Uh, so we, we looked at that in the report and also the consumer side of things. You know, we're seeing more and more data around the, the CPI and the, uh, you know, increasing cost of of everything. But uh, but dairy is very much a part of that um, that increasing cost of living and um, trying to unpack some of the consumer behaviours in response to that. How are dairy farmers negotiating all of that? How is uh, their production tracking? So production's down around 6.5% for the season to date. So... Uh, you know, you've got the hangover of the, the the floods in New South Wales and Queensland, and then uh, obviously been a wet winter across those northern states, and now you know a wet spring um, down south. So, so milk production is lagging behind uh, lagging behind last season. Uh, we had the floods uh, again in October, give it a knock around in in northern Victoria especially. Um, so we will be uh, we, we're going to finish this season below last season. I think uh, goes without saying. Uh, we've seen increase in culling. Um, you know, it's because you know farmers navigating those wet conditions on farm and, and trying to reduce um, stocking rates. And of course, again, the, the staff um, challenges have, have you know stopped farmers who might otherwise be expanding from uh, from chasing that as well. Not all dairy regions have been flooded. Does that mean that the wet weather and the flooding have hit? harder in some regions and others are, are stable? Is that 6.5% um, across the board or are you seeing that more prolifically in some areas than others? Yeah, it's sort of, uh, it, it's not across the board, um, but certainly, um, you know, similar sort of magnitudes across the Victorian regions, which, you know, which are around two thirds of the country's milk and uh, and Tassie as well in, in the same ballpark. Um, 
you know, and, and Tassie sort of had, you know, similar again to, to Victoria, started the season, um, you know, sort of behind the eight ball weather-wise, those, those challenges coming through. And then, you know, they had their own floods um, in October as well, which, which knocked things around a little bit. And, and the critical part is that, you know, they happened right at the peak of production. Um, outside of Victoria and Tassie, you know, it's a, it's a mixed bag. You know, South Australia and WA um, looking much better. Um, Queensland and New South Wales looking worse, um, you know, again, on the, on the back of those earlier season floods. And now international factors are a big part of this report as well. How does the situation here in Australia compare globally? The international scene's really... Um, really become a bit more nuanced in the last few months you know we've had a really um you know risky kind of 2022 with all you know the war in ukraine in particular um of course you know china's going through its um you know sort of reckoning with COVID, and that's uh, that's impacting demand um or from a supply perspective what we've started to see in the last few months is northern hemisphere has been growing uh, but new zealand's dealing with many of the same issues we are including you know the staffing challenge and so um couple that with uh, you know a slow start to the season or wet start to the season in some parts. New Zealand's well behind last last year as well. That's Dairy Australia's John Droppett speaking there with Peter Somerville about the 6.5% drop in milk production for the season to October so far. Well, the Launceston Vet Clinic fears proposed changes to after-hours and emergency services will worsen an already struggling industry. Arranging after-hours care is a minimum requirement for vets. New standards drafted by the Vet Board of Tasmania propose to lift these requirements, saying that vets should prioritise their own well-being. Madeleine Rajan spoke to Launceston vet David Allen, who worries many vets who are already under immense pressure will opt out of being on call, and this will add stress to those who remain on after-hours duty. They're coming from the aspect, um, so we've been told, of protecting the mental health of vets which I completely get. Vets work hard during the day and then to be asking vets to, to work every night on call is, you know, is not really sustainable. Now, first off, this is not a problem for a vet in Hobart because there is one after-hours emergency centre in Hobart. So a lot of the practices won't do on call. They'll just fin- close for the night and, and that's it. We don't have an after-hours centre in Launceston or in the northwest and so the vets do their own on call. Now we have the number of vets that we have, we have a lot of clients as well and we're able to take turns being on call. If these standards do go ahead is it the practice that could choose whether they did after hours care or is it the vet that could step away from it and say I don't want to do that? Both. And so it could, the owner might be talking to the vets and say, say, what do you think? And they may say, we don't want to be on call. And so the the practice might say, right, we're not going to be on call now. We're very concerned that if the legislation goes ahead, practices will properly close up. There may well be other practices which decide to to not be on call and then we are being presented with those practices clients who have emergencies uh, while we're also dealing with our own clients. So the workload for these these practices is going to go up a lot. Yeah, and how, how busy would it generally get at, at night? It, it's variable. So we could have zero, one, two 
call-outs a night, that's probably a nice average, but we could also have five, six or seven. And just speaking about yeah. the, you know, the pressures on vets already, how, how hard they work, does this issue speak to that broader topic? It does, and, well, I suppose as an owner, we have a wonderful team. I can't stress that enough, of vets and, and nurses, and they practice great medicine and they're dedicated and part of that dedication is we look after we always have we look after animals after hours now the bad scenario will be is that we're night after night doing our own calls but then we're doing calls of other vets who are not on call and then eventually the the mental stress on on our vets will be that we won't be able to field a team to be on call in a particular night. So we then may well, and I'm speaking for the other practices as well, might say, we can't do this, we can't field this, we can't be on call tonight. Now, if that's the case, then in Launceston, there may not be any vet who will be able to be to see an injured or, or sick animal that night. So your only option then is for the animals to to drive two hours down to Hobart to the after-hours centre, which is there. And and the concern, of course, is some of those patients could be so critical that they're not going to make it. What we would like to do is suggest that the small practices that, you know, may only have one or two vets, that they do band together like ourselves with the other practice and they have their group of, of just being able to do uh, on-calls for each other. That could mean that they might be on-call once or twice a week as the, for an individual with a small number of cases. And so if, if people can, sh- if we can share share it out and not just expect that you know two or three large practices to take everyone else's clients after hours that would be sustainable what kind of pressures are you on under currently um, without these standards we've worked very hard there's we we're almost there's more animals to be seen than physical time and and vets to see them it's difficult to recruit vets uh, the cases that we see are very emotive. Um, and we um, we are dealing with basically people's children, and sometimes you know our patients pass away or they're inoperable; they can't be fixed, and so we're dealing with a lot of emotion there. So the vets can suffer emotional burnout. And- Yes, Launceston vet David Allen talking to Madeleine Rojan about the changes to after-hour practices. And the vet board says in a statement that the new proposals aim to clarify appropriate standards expected of a registered vet practitioner. ABC Gives. This is the 2022 ABC Giving Tree Giveathon. Keep texting in that number 0438922936 for your chance to be part of the plan to maybe win a five kilo box of Derwent Valley cherries. 0438922936 and make sure you put the word cherries in there or cherry.
anything that looks like a cherry. You can even put that um, picture of a cherry in if you want. That'll do. A Northwest Farm Employment Agency has had a bit of almost accidental success with a campaign to get more international workers down to Tasmania. Belle Binder from Leftfield in Devonport says she's noticed that while a lot of international workers have returned to Australia, many of them are finding so much work on the mainland they have no need to come down to Tasmania. She made an ad asking the simple question, are you missing out on Tasmania? And found herself swamped with about 300 inquiries within a couple of days. So after talking to farmers, what I was finding was a bit of a common theme that the backpackers were following the season down the coastline, but they were skipping Tasmania. Because there's so much farm work happening and, and demand, um, there was no need to come to Tasmania, whereas pre-COVID, uh, not so much farm work around, and so they come down to Tasmania because it's sort of a bit of an ag hub down here. Um, so I thought, OK, well, put myself in backpacker's shoes. I'd be pretty disappointed if I found out later that I missed out on Tasmania because... We've got something that the rest of Australia doesn't. It's our people, it's our landscape, it's the experiences. It's, you just can't match it. So I thought I'd create a campaign that I actually titled Are You Missing Out on Tasmania? And I highlighted all the things that Tasmania offers that you can't see or experience anywhere else in Australia. And I launched that through the networks that I have in the backpacker um, community. And it went off. I actually didn't expect it to sort of be so uh, go so well. So I've had over 300 backpackers personally contact me <laughs> wanting to experience Tasmania. And that was just sort of the first stage of this launch that I put together. So really knocked me out of my seat <laughs> that, it was, that it was that popular. But it's fantastic. And I don't know if it's a coincidence, but... A week or two after that, the spirits announced that there's been such high demand because that was one of the issues. They couldn't get here because the spirit was so booked out. Um, now the spirit has put in some additional sailings. So you so... might have single-handedly forced <laughs> TT light. <laughs> <laughs> because they said even dates that were normally not peak season for them were just booking out. So I don't know if I was responsible for that. <laughs> Hey, what a bonus to our, our beautiful, beautiful state. And we've been able to fill those spots. And it's primarily on berry farms at the moment, but potatoes will come and onions will come and cauliflowers are about to be cut and they've just been planting the last few months. And, yeah, it all comes in full force now. So we'll be looking for more and more workers as we go along into summer. So what have you actually done with this campaign? Why did it work so well, it seems? I think I've, because I'm connected with the right network um, through backpackers, I think it was just the reach and just being clever about where I was promoting it. it was, I didn't put money into it, really. I mean, I put maybe $20 in boosting it on Facebook, but that's it. Other than that, it was just strategically placing it in front of the right people. And so I'm, I'm guessing it's just sort of showing beautiful pictures of landscape. Yeah, yeah, landscape, but also experiences. So um, I popped it on our website, but also in lots and lots of places online. But gee, some of the things, let, let me have a scroll. Some of the things were that we've got um, the air that we breathe. It's one of the freshest in the world. You're not going to experience that in the rest of Australia, but you will in Tasmania. We've got 
over 2,000 kilometres walking track. We've got 18 national parks. We've got Tasmanian devils that you could see in the wild. You're not going to see them in the wild in the rest of Australia. We've got more whiskey distilleries than any other state. And a big reason for that is because our weather's perfect. For maturing whiskey, it's got... We've got all the ingredients that can be sourced here. We've got the peat bogs and spring water that can be sourced from here. It's just so much to experience. I'm I'm interested as to why this has seemed to work so far because it's pretty simple and it's not really that different to what our tourism bodies and things are promoting. But for some reason, this has captured a different market, perhaps. I think it was. The way it was worded, are you missing out on Tasmania? Because I was putting myself in the backpacker's shoes and I wouldn't miss on, want to miss out on something special in Australia. And so I thought that would really speak to the people that are searching for something that maybe their fellow backpackers aren't experiencing. And it's something special and it's something secret about Australia. And so it may, may have just touched on that exclusive being exclusive, I'm going to be the one that experiences it. Leftfield Managing Director Bill Binder explaining her campaign to get more workers, more backpackers into Tasmania. And she was talking there to Meg Powell. Well, robots equipped with sucker caps that can pick capsicums up in a greenhouse, others that chip or spray weeds in the field, tell when a watermelon is ripe, will help pollinate tomatoes growing in a greenhouse. They're all applications that the robotics team from the Centre for Robotics, the key UT, are working on. Jennifer Nichols spoke to senior lecturer Chris Leonard to find out more. So this is part of our research vertical farm lab. So what we're doing is researching growing crops in vertical farming systems and being able to interact with them using robotics. Uh, So we've got a custom robot that can move to different locations but also uh, use computer vision and AI to estimate the maturity of cherry tomatoes in this case but we're also growing strawberries, capsicums and kale as well and we're also designing different robot tools that can harvest these fruits as well. And I can see your machine there, that's the robot that's been harvesting capsicums by whacking them with a suction cup and then pulling them off. I wouldn't say whacking. (laughs) I'd say gently attaching the suction cup so it doesn't damage the fruit. Uh, And then it actually uses a cutting tool uh, and cuts off at the peduncle so you get a nice quality fruit uh, off the plant. And the vision that we're watching here with your field trials, with your spray machine, mm. that's such a job, isn't it, to try yes. to teach a robot what is friend and foe yeah. for the farmer in, in their particular application. That's hoeing the ground as well. Yeah, so it's selectively managing weeds. So what it's doing is using computer vision, determining the different species of weeds against the crop that you're growing. So it chooses not to attack the crop, but then selectively puts a hoe down at the right location to manage the weeds only. And it also can do, um, as an integrated weed management solution, it can do spraying or mechanical. So the idea was to move closer to uh, herbicide-free weed management systems using robotics. The mechanical hoe is very interesting. How effective is it? Uh, So... I wasn't on that research on the mechanical effectiveness, but we do have a paper that looked at um, how effective it was. Uh, In terms of just comparing a trial on not controlling weeds to controlling weeds with that system, the weeds density was reduced by 90% uh, from my memory. And here's the tomato trial that you were talking about, 
machines coming on and off the rails that are running between the rows of hydroponically grown tomatoes? Yeah, and so you can see here the challenge is to navigate around its environment and it uses uh, laser scans and 3D cameras and does the obstacle avoidance and then it uses those 3D cameras to detect where the pipe rails are, align itself with those pipe rails and drive on and off. And there's a bit of finesse that we've been playing around with making sure that that's quite reliable. You can see a few times it actually has to back up, adjust and go back on. But we found that it was quite uh, robust um, to different scenarios in the end. And what sort of applications in there could you have? Uh, so the first application was looking at tomato pollination. But there's a lot of interesting things we can think about in the future, especially around crop monitoring. If you can autonomously navigate a greenhouse, you can actually create a map of the greenhouse and actually collect data of the plants as you navigate. So if you can produce a map to a grower saying, here is how many tomatoes you have in this crop row or how many flowers you have, here is how good your system is going at the current time, that's a lot of value to a grower that they can make better decisions on how to market their fruit, how different greenhouses are going, different crop rows are going. Maybe effectiveness. There's a, yes. Maybe there's a disease, maybe there's a certain ineffectiveness in one row that you want to address, yeah. That's one thing. The next thing would also look at different labour intensive tasks such as harvesting the fruit when it's ready and mature to uh, pruning or trellising. There's a lot of work in pruning leaves, pruning leaves at the right time to promote growth, but also trellising. Uh, there's a classic drop, lower and, and move uh, technique that they need for tomatoes to keep the vine growing throughout the greenhouse. Uh, in an agriculture environment, you can't predict where every leaf is, where every branch is, where every fruit is. You don't know that beforehand, so you need to have artificial intelligence or really good computer vision to know and sense where everything is, then make good decisions after that. Uh, we're also looking at yeah, estimating problems with fruit, such as mould growth. Uh, we're working with a strawberry farmer to detect early signs of mould, which we all know is a bit of a problem for strawberries. When you open that packet up at home, it can grow mould quite quickly. So if we can detect that really early, then we can prevent that problem. Yeah. The watermelon invention, where are you at with that? Uh, so we just finished a feasibility study to look at the different sensors required, and we're actually trying to get into the next phase um, and acquire a, a bit more funding to go to the prototype tool level so we can actually show a real uh, tool working in the field. That's Chris Lennon, Senior Lecturer and Chief Investigator for the QUT Centre for Robotics, talking to Jennifer Nichols about some of the projects they are working on. The 2022 ABC Giveathon Tree Tally Time. Okay, Joe Spargo, I feel like I should have a cow horn or a sheep bleating or something, <laughs> something rural happening. Big, a big moment. A big moment. We have reached $100,000. Congratulations. Wow. Fantastic. Everybody that has donated and listened, this is the most wonderful day of the year. It's an incredible thing to be part of. Yeah. It used to warm my heart to see our foyer slowly fill up with gifts under that Christmas tree. But this is so much better because it gives the the power of the purchase back to the people that need it to be able to go shopping and to buy what they need and that specific thing that they want or the, the colour of the bike that their child wants or the, that particular toy. 
rather than having to choose from a table of of things that we've purchased yep. and put underneath a tree. There's a little bit joy. of em- empowerment back to people who really need some empowerment, does, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, some of the messages, Genevieve uh, donated four minutes ago saying, Cherry Merry Christmas. <laughs> Love it. Um, Jan, with well done ABC and best wishes to all this Christmas. Some beautiful messages in there. A little giving is good. It sure is. So any donation helps and we are by far the most generous place in Australia to C- live. Certainly are. So that tally again? Oh, it's $100,292. Oh, fantastic. See how much more we can get. Um, so keep texting the word yeah. cherry because we'll announce the winner before one o'clock. Before one o'clock we will uh-huh. and uh, we'll have you back in about well, 15 minutes or so, Joe, with a, another tally. That number zero four three eight nine double two nine three six, and you get sent a text back. And put the word cherry in there mm-hmm. and uh, you'll be in line to maybe win that five kilogram box of cherries. Mm-hmm. We shall check the weather in just a moment. First up, the news headlines with Michael Della Fontana. Thank you, Tony. Australia's economic growth has come in slightly below expectations, with GDP growing by 0.6% in the September quarter and 5.9% through the year. The result was Australia's fourth consecutive quarter of economic growth following a contraction during the COVID Delta wave lockdowns last year, but economists were expecting a slighter, stronger reading. Consumer watchdog the ACCC is urging Australians to check their solar power battery systems amid concerns they could catch fire. A series of LG solar home energy batteries were initially recalled in February last year, but more models have since been added. The ACCC says almost 5,000 households will be contacted as part of the recall. And the Premier Jeremy Rockliffe expects to discuss funding for an AFL stadium at Macquarie Point in Hobart with the Prime Minister in coming weeks. The state government has promised to pay half the estimated $750 million cost, but they want the federal government to also help fund it. Mr Rockliffe says it probably won't be discussed at National Cabinet on Friday. And there'll be more news at one o'clock. Thank you, Michael. Let's check the latest weather now with Matthew Thomas from the Bureau. G'day, Matthew. Hi, Tony. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. What's it looking like out there? A bit of a mix again? Yeah, look, we've got a cold front approaching from the west, um, clouds building um, about the west. We have seen a few light um, showers, so look, less than a millimetre since 9am in the um, the rain gauge about the west. And before 9am, there was um, a few light falls of less than a millimetre about the um, the south and the, the east. So nothing really significant at the moment. We're expecting to see some showers and thunderstorms pop up about the um, the Midlands and the, um, the East Coast District during the afternoon into the evening. Um, but otherwise, those showers about the west will increase um, today and then uh, begin to extend to um, most districts overnight as that cold front starts to um, cross the state. Um, and that as that um, front does cross, it's going to bring a very cold um, southerly um, or southwesterly stream um, across Tasmania for tomorrow. Um, we will see that the winds pick up about the northwest of the state, um, and so it will be um, windy um, about the northwest. Um, mainly about the, the ranges, but also um, potential for it to push down into um, to places like Sheffield, and um, but also along um, the coast near um, Smithton. Um, and um, we'll see some snow lowering down to around 800 metres tomorrow as well. Um, and um, some showers um, largely around the, the west um, and south and central parts of the state. We're looking at around um, 20 to 30 millimetres about the west and the far south, 5 to 10 millimetres about the northeast ranges, generally less than 5 millimetres elsewhere. A ridge of high pressure to move over Tasmania on um, 
on Friday. We'll see the showers really largely about um, about southern and central parts of the state and, and generally less than two millimetres um, in the rain gauge. Um, still um, fine conditions expected across the north on, um, on Friday. Into Saturday, that high-pressure system moves out to the east. Um, we'll just see some, um, some early showers um, um, about the east and the south, less than two millimetres in the, the rain gauge out of those. And then some showers developing um, quite late about the, the far northwest. Um, and once again, there won't be terribly much in those on the, the Sunday. But those showers developing about the northwest are as a low pressure system does approach. And that will bring some rain to the, um, the north and the west. At the moment, it's looking like around five to 15 millimetres about the, the north and the west on um, on Sunday, um, but that's very much dependent upon the position of the low pressure system and that allows and remains near Tasmania on Monday and looking quite wet on Monday as well. Okay, it just won't go away, will it? No. <laughs> uh, warnings, what have we got? Um, so in terms of warnings, the um, the key one um, from a, um, the, the farming point of view is there is a warning to sheep graziers for today and tomorrow about the northwest coast, Midlands, the east coast, Upper Doon Valley and southeast forecast districts um, with that cold weather um, beginning to, to start um, later tonight and maintaining through um, tomorrow. Um, there is also for today a gale warning current for western coastal waters from southeast Cape to Stanley, um, a strong wind warning for northern coastal waters between Stanley and St Helens Point into tomorrow. The gale warnings are for um, northern and eastern coastal waters from Stanley to Tasman Island, um, excluding Bank Strait and Franklin Sound and also for the southwestern coastal waters and a strong wind warning for all remaining coastal waters and all southeast inshore waters. And um, moving on to the, um, the coastal waters, um, for the today, um, west to southwesterly winds, uh, 15 to 25 knots about the north, 10 to 20 knots elsewhere, um, increasing um, about the north and the east late uh, Sorry, sorry, during the afternoon, getting up to, um, to 20 to 30 knots um, about the north. Um, and then the wind's shifting um, southwesterly at 20 to 30 knots during the evening, but reaching 35 knots about the west late. Into tomorrow, south to southwesterly winds, 20 to 30 knots, reaching 35 knots about the, um, the north, east and the southwest during the morning and early afternoon. And the wind's um, easing to 15 to 25 knots. Um, from the west during the afternoon and evening as that ridge of high pressure um, approaches. Um, in terms of the swells, the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrel currently shows a significant wave of, um, of 1.8 metres, a maximum wave of 3.7 metres and uh, an 18 second period. The wave rider buoy at um, Mariah Island currently shows a significant wave of 1.9 metres, a maximum wave of 3.2 metres and a um, nine second period. We expect the, um, the swells will, uh, about the west in the south will um, be southwesterly, building to three to four metres through today, and then um, up to four to five metres through tomorrow. There's an east to southeasterly of one to um, one and a half metres about the south. Through the north, a confused swell around one metre, and about the east, um, a southeasterly of one to two metres, um, decaying down through tomorrow, and a southerly of um, one to two metres offshore. Okay, thank you, Matthew. Have a great day. You too, Matthew Thomas from the Bureau. The 2022 ABC Giveathon. How much money can you raise in one day? How many cherries can you eat in one day? Keep uh, texting in 0438922936 for your chance to maybe win a five kilogram box of Derwent Valley cherries. 
0438 Text the word cherry in or cherries, something that looks like a cherry, and uh, you could be in line to win that fabulous prize. Well, from cherries to passion fruits. And the president of Passion Fruit Australia says growers will be playing catch-up for the next few years after a perfect storm of weather killed large amounts of vines this year. Dennis Chant told Jennifer Nichols he hopes supply would increase in time for Christmas, but many fields of purple passion fruit will need to be replanted. It's been a very challenging year, particularly in a lot of our growing areas. The main growing areas are the Tweed Valley, the Sunshine Coast, Bundaberg area and then far north Queensland. Most of those areas have had extraordinary amounts of rain, so fungal diseases, not being able to get on to spray, too much water, weather was too cold. So yeah, I think it's been the perfect storm actually against the industry this year, so it's been quite a challenge. And what has that meant for production compared to an average year? I think we're going to feel that probably for the next year or two because we generally uh, plant every uh, plants last about three years so a lot of crops have been totally wiped out so we'll be playing catch up for the next couple of years so I think production is probably particularly of the purple varieties that we get in the south I think there's more production of the Panama varieties which are grown up in North Queensland their production hasn't been as affected so the market supply for the purples is probably going to be a little bit tight over the next year or two but we're working very hard to get back to uh, what we were before. What's that going to mean with prices to consumers and supply for our PAVs over Christmas? Oh, well, hopefully. um, I know our own crops are starting to pick up a bit, so we're hoping that we will have some supplies, particularly of the purples, for Christmas. But because we are spread over such a wide region, I'm sure there will be supplies coming on the market for Christmas time. And it's always a good time for passion fruit sales, obviously, as you say, for pavlova and that. And demand for passion fruit pre-Christmas is always very strong. So we're working very hard to ensure that we can supply that. I know in my coverage of the passion fruit industry over recent years, at times the prices have been so far below the cost of production. How has that been tracking? Passion fruit is produced all year round and prices per case can vary from $25 to $150 depending on the supply. So a month or two ago you would have been paying $150 a case for purples because they are so scarce at the time. Come just after Christmas, uh, prices should be back to more normal, $30, $35. That depends then on what the supermarkets do with the prices because, you know, those margins obviously are a big factor in what the consumer pays for passion fruit. Things have been a bit quiet since COVID because the market's been so unpredictable. But pre-COVID, we were having some dialogue through our agents with the supermarkets to say, well, look, when there is good supplies, because supplies of passion fruit can pick up very quickly we have these big flushes and then there's a lot of fruit on the market now that's the time when the supermarkets should be looking at putting them in on as a special to move the product and get more out there because passion fruit is very popular but sometimes it can be an expensive fruit if they were selling it in a bag of five or something like that rather than individually that would make it more palatable yeah and one of the challenges is being able to react when these big supply peaks come on because they're very hard to predict we generally get about three or four peaks a year and you can't pick it for a week or two before so look there are some challenges but the acceptance of Australian passion fruit is very high the quality is very high and we aim to continue that the supermarkets obviously are are a very big distributor of our product now so we're keen to work with them to ensure that you know they are available at good quality at a, at a reasonable price. What about imports? I hear 
the potential of fruit coming in from Vietnam? Yeah, well, we've only just had a presentation today from the Department of Agricultural and Fisheries, uh, the Federal Department, that uh, will uh, next week be releasing a draft report on the import of passion fruit into uh, Australia, or, or sorry, that will be released next year. Uh, today is the first time they've come to the industry to let us know what's going on. We have been aware that Vietnam is making an application to bring in passion fruit. The only response we can give relates to the biosecurity threats, factors such as the commercial factors, whether the market's going to be flooded with cheap passion fruit from Vietnam. That's not a factor that they take into account because we are part of the World Trade Organisation and we have to give market access where it is safe to give market access. Do you have any biosecurity concerns in regards to pests and diseases that are overseas that aren't currently in Australia? Well, biosecurity is very important to us. You know, we're involved in the varroa mite control program, for instance. Now, that's costing the industry a lot of money. So we're very, very conscious that, you know, biosecurity, all the boxes are ticked. Now, one of the challenges for a small industry like passion fruit is where do we get the resources from to be very analytical about the type of pests that we should be looking at. And that's the sort of assurances that the people from the department are giving us at the moment, that they've had experts in Vietnam and it is open to the state governments and the industry to uh, scrutinise the processes that they're going through. So we're really putting them through the mill this morning. Um, The processes they've got for Australia are very stringent, but it's not 100% fail-safe. It's a difficult line to tread, isn't it? Because we like to export our... Yes, and that's produce, the thing, and know. so they and the, need fair access in too, yeah. as long as it's not going to jeopardise things. And, and, and the point was made that you know, sixty percent or more of Australian produce is exported. You know, so we we're in the world market, and we have to be conscious of that. Are many Australian, if any, passion fruit exported? No, there's no export market out of Australia for fresh passion fruit anyway. Um, We totally survive on uh, supplying the domestic market. And what's your favourite way to eat passion fruit? Oh, look, I just like to crack it and just eat it fresh in the field, you know, and we do the taste tests all the time just to see how it's going, you know, and, you know, whether it's nice and sweet. So typically purple passion fruit, you harvest them when they've fallen on the ground and that's when they're at their sweetest. Uh, the Panamas, they tend to pick them. But, yeah, no, I just like it fresh straight out of the skin. Yes, Passion Fruit Australia President Dennis Chan, who says in an average year growers produce 4,800 tonnes of fruit 60% from Queensland, 35% from New South Wales and 5% from WA. And I do know there are some passion fruits, not commercially probably, grown in Tasmania. I've got one in the backyard. Just starting to see some fruit come on now. Come on, you passion fruits. Well, Tasmania will become a more important player when it comes to our national lamb market, according to one expert. Tom Bull is the general manager of LambPro, a prime Australian lamb seed stock business. He's just returned from the United States where he was catching in on all the Aussie lamb on American shelves. He's told Madeleine Rojan he reckons Tassie's role in the grass-fed market will grow. Yeah, so now we went over there and went to a lot of retailers and restaurants and different things. Yeah, more just seeing how our lamb's going and, um, yeah, where the opportunities are. And how was it going? Uh, it's going well, yep. Certainly, uh, you know, the, the US has increased its consumption per capita as a market. You know, there's been big growth in the market. Probably the big, you know, the big thing on everyone's mind at the moment, which is the same as Australia's inflationary pressures and interest rate rises. So we have seen the growth cooled and sort of stabilised. But still, it's a big market, particularly those high-end, you know, consumers. They're probably not as affected to, you know, interest rate rises and whatnot. So, yeah, there's still certainly plenty of opportunities. So with the cost of living rising, people are still purchasing lamb? 
Well, I asked, as, as you know, as with Australia, you know, it, it sort of slowed a bit. But um, but remembering there's 330 million people, we don't need the American to eat much lamb to sort of create a lot of um, you know, a lot of tons to go in there. And um, I understand you also work with lambs in southern Tasmania. Yeah, so we've got a few clients uh, in um, Tasmania. We haven't got any of them in our branded programs yet, but that's only a matter of time. A lot of our markets to date have been grain-fed, and um, obviously, yeah, with grain pricing in Tasmania, that probably hasn't been as big a thing, but I do see our Tasmanian clients playing a big part with grass-fed markets into, yeah, into export markets, um, particularly some of those higher marbling grass-fed markets over the next two years. Some of those year-round grass-fed markets, Tasmania, will grow in importance just because of certainly some of the pivots and the water access. Um, I think that's a really important part of grass-fed markets is being able to do year in, year out. And um, certainly there is some segments of the market that want grass-fed. Once you overlay some of the animal welfare accreditation, I think there's certainly some big opportunities for Tassie producers in some of those export markets. So the climate down here is one reason why we're at an advantage when it comes to um, lamb production? Yeah, certainly the climate, but also the availability of water. Um, you know, there's a lot of centre pivots in Tassie that lambs are finished under, and um, and that gives the consistency. And um, now once you've got that consistency, you know, you can produce lambs pretty much year-round that, um, that are basically got a similar nutritional regime off grass. The mainland struggles because, obviously, you know, if you're relying on the season to do it, you know, particularly in New South Wales, where I come from, if you haven't got any form of water, you know, certainly you've got to either resort to grain, and obviously for a lot of grass-fed programs, um, you can't use grain. So, yeah, certainly that's where the Tassie, the Tassie production system comes in. Talking about uh, the export out of Australia, how much do we actually export? I think it's up towards 65% now. You know, it was 50-50, but there's no doubt our exports have grown. You know, the sad component, you know, the sad element of that is, uh, you know, our domestic consumption per capita is reducing, and that's, um, you know, I think that's gone from, say, you know, 11, you know, 15 years ago down to probably 5.6. You know, so we've seen domestic um, consumption per capita you know, certainly uh, reduce on the basis of export growth. But at the end of the day, you know, we're a business, um, you know, we, we feed people, you know, worldwide. And, um, you know, there's certainly no, you know, there's no real issue in my eyes, the fact that, you know, we supply more export than domestic. And what what is the attraction for international markets to Australian meat well, I think you're going to remember lamb. There's only two main exporting countries. So, you know, the first thing is there isn't a lot of lamb in the world. You know, it's really a lobster, you know, in comparison just in terms of it's, you know, it's quite rare. Um, we only have one major exporting competitor being New Zealand. And Australia is seen as clean and green, um, you know, high-quality producers. So all of that sort of bodes pretty well for the next, you know, the next decade in um, lamb production. 
General Manager of Lampro, Tom Bull, with our reporter Madeline Rojan about the positive future for Tasmanian grass-fed lamb when it comes to countries like the US. So we've got a couple of minutes left to keep on texting in the word cherries, 0438 to uh, put your name in for that fabulous prize of five kilo box of Duant Valley cherries, 0438922936. Go to it. Still a few minutes left. We will announce the winner after Richard Bailey. Time now to head out to the livestock markets and say good day to Richard. How are you, Richard? Going well, Tony. Going well. Still that mixed weather continues. We uh, we needed to settle down, I think, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> How was it yesterday at Power Edda, Richard? <laughs> there was a fa- For those that know the, the cattle shed at Power Edda, there was a fair little draft coming from the south, <laughs> stuck in underneath the roof. Um, but nowhere near as strong as the day before. Monday up here, it absolutely blew. Yeah. Um, it's just the way the, the, the season's been, isn't it? It's... Um, and you know, most people are saying, "Look, this, uh, the, you know, the grass season's been all right, but it's not over the top by any means because of this chilly weather, and um, you know, in some cases, it's been too wet and stuff." But look, we can't go, we can't grumble. It's uh, not that long ago that most of the state was in drought, so uh, you know, yeah. I think uh, we'll just take what we get. Exactly. Okay. Cattle numbers. How were they? A little bit better than last week. We had 64 cattle all up. There's some better quality yearlings there. They sold pretty well. Uh, anywhere from 360 to 370 uh, to 478 a kilo. Um, but most of them over 400 cents a kilo. There were uh, some that went to kill at 360, but generally speaking, they were over 400 cents a kilo. Some of the most, well, most of the steers went back to the paddock, um, and yielding heifers anywhere from 400 to 448. So, still pretty good money there. A few grown steers and bullocks. They've they've just eased boost back a little bit. Most of these made anywhere from sort of three eighty to four hundred cents a kilo in that sort of bracket, and then very heavy bullocks three fifty cents a kilo, topped at twenty nine hundred dollars. Very few cows. The best cows sold well. They made three thirty to three thirty four, and then there were ten bulls, and uh, they made anywhere from two thirty to two fifty cents a kilo. Okay. We're at Piranha tomorrow, uh, the last of the store cattle sales for 2022. I think there'll be about a 1,000 cattle. You never know by the time we get there tomorrow, there might be 1,200. But um, there'll, be, uh, there'll be a good little number for people to pick around on. All right. Now, this time last week when we spoke, you uh, mentioned the mutton market especially and the lamb market. What's happened in, in between since? Well, as a result of the mutton market last week, the the uh, producers uh, voted with their numbers. There were only 179 mutton for the day, so barely enough to worry about. Uh, they probably sold to a slightly better market, but a lot of sheep making sort of anywhere from 50 to 60 to 70 dollars a head in that sort of bracket. Uh, restock was stepped in and and you know bought lighter sheep anywhere from 26 to 40 dollars. Um, the very heavy sheep are the ones that are really copping it. They they topped at $62 a head. Back over to the lambs, uh, we had small, a smaller number of lambs, 1,198 lambs. Most of those this uh, were new seasons, so we've just about finished the old seasons. The top pen of lambs were a magnificent pen of lambs, and they made $182 to kill. 
But just about everything else in that in those better quality lambs, they all, just about all went back to the paddock. And I think that, generally speaking, most of the restockers thought that they bought pretty well yesterday. Um, anywhere the trade weight lambs, anywhere from 122 to $146, most of them in that 120 to $135. And then light trade, anywhere from 100 to $134. These to go back to the paddock. A few light trade lambs to kill, 90 to $98. And then there were some very small lambs, a draft of very small lambs, I think mainly from one place, but anywhere from 22 to $62. Now, you might think, oh, it's only $22, but those lambs at the bottom end of that draft were very small. Yeah, so that's sort of, there's plenty of interest, though, from restockers on those better types of lambs. That, you know, in, in many years, they'd be killable lambs. So uh, they, I think they're probably thinking that they can take them back and put, uh, put a fair bit of weight on them pretty quickly. So, um, yeah. Interesting times coming ahead. We'll we'll see more new seasons lambs come to the market over the next month, and uh, that'll just test where the whole job's going to be. Okay, and we'll check those mainland figures uh, on Friday. We will. See you then. That is our livestock reporter, Richard Bailey. We'll also talk about the store cattle sale at Powerana tomorrow when Richard does return on Friday. The 2022 ABC Giveathon Tree Tally Time. I am blessed with so many guests in the studio today. Not only Joe Spargo, but Jane Longhurst. Hello. Tony, it's so good to see you. You too. Happy Rural Day. I'm bringing your <laughs> afternoon from half past one. And now dominating the airwaves, I just wanted to share with you, Tony, from half past one on your afternoon, start texting in the word TASTE because you may go into the mix for a family pass to taste of summer. Can you beat our cherries, eh? Well, who doesn't want cherries at this mm. time of the year? There'll probably be ter- cherries in the taste as well, I reckon. <laughs> I reckon. So taste is the word? Taste is the word. Okay. Uh, Joe Spargo, what are we at with uh, the uh, total at the moment? We've had some really generous genera- uh, generous donations. I'm losing the ability to speak. I've been going at it <laughs> since very early this morning. Um, Lindisfarne Primary School put in a really significant donation. So thank you to that school community. Um, we've just had an anonymous donation saying wishing all Tasmanians a safe, happy and healthy Christmas and thank you to the ABC for promoting your wonderful community spirit once again and what an incredible community spirit we have in this state. That's fantastic. I wonder if they listen to the country at Lindisfarne School. Probably do. That's cool. Do you think they That's would? pretty cool. Well, well their cool donation school. dropped during your show, <laughs> so that would make me think yeah. that, uh, that they're avid country, our listeners, Tony Briscoe. We are at... Fantastic. And we have a winner of our box of cherries. Mm -hmm. Do we know who the winner is? Kate. 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 Goodness, it's been a a festival of disasters trying to get you on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) But congratulations. Kate, what are you going to do with all those cherries? Five kilos. I'm going to fight my kids for them, I reckon. <laughs> I'll be pretty keen. You'll be giving them away to all your friends and relatives I and neighbours. I suspect there will be a fair bit of giving away, which is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. What part of uh, Tasmania are you in, Kate? Uh, Blackman's Bay. Beautiful. Beautiful Bay. Okay. Well, cherries grow down there near the Huon Valley. There's plenty of cherries down that way. But, uh, yeah, these ones come from the Duan Valley, so... That's okay, isn't it? That's excellent. So do I. I grew up in the Dunn Valley. Very appropriate. Good on you. Well done and congratulations and thanks for being part of the Giveathon. Excellent. Thank you very much. Kate from Blackman's Bay. And uh, Jane, you have a great program this afternoon. Thanks a lot, Tony. 
And uh, Jo Spargo, thank you for all your work. Oh, and, you're welcome. Jane Longhurst has also got an incredibly significant prize to give away a bit later on, which is a Southwest Wilderness Experience. Ooh, Flights, like... boat trip, lunch, guided walking tours. And afternoon teas, four packages of afternoon teas, if you don't mind, also going up in afternoons. I might change my name and... and no, I can't <laughs> No, that, we've, no. we've all discussed that. Yeah, we've all had that thought, Tony. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a Merry great Christmas. Day. Yeah, Merry Christmas, everyone. And that's our Country Hour for today. Thanks for all your support for the Giveathon, and we will catch you after midday tomorrow.